All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right, well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Josh Patterson, and with me today is my man, Marty Frederick. Marty, what's going on, dude? What's going on, Josh? Are you uh, are you excited that hockey may be coming back soon? Most definitely. Yeah, I've been praying for that for like a long time, you know, so I feel like... You know yeah, you know what's so cool is that like the Blackhawks weren't really all that going to be all that great this year, and yet they get to be in the playoffs. Bro, they're gonna, they got they're gonna so lucky. Playing, they're going to be playing the Oilers in the playoffs. And they're going to get smashed by the Oilers in the playoffs. Hey, Josh, you know, any given day, any team can win. You That's know? true. That's so, true, especially you know, when you have Jonathan Taves and Patrick Kane running yeah, around. You can't, you, can't dis, you, know, you can't discredit that. So yeah. all I'm saying is I, I'm excited, man, for, you know, like – I know that one of the things with, with COVID, I mean, it was the right decision to, you know, close these places, you know, these, these events down and not have, you know, tens of thousands of people gathering inside a building. And, you know, I, I get it. It was totally the right thing to do. Um, but that's been, I think that's been one of the hardest things is like in our nation, there hasn't been like, you know, something to do, you know, that's a reason why something like the Michael Jordan documentary that they did on ESPN had like millions and millions of viewers. Cause they were just, dying for something other than their netflix binge you know so i'm excited for sports are you know is there any other sports you're excited about anything else that you're looking forward to um i mean not really hockey's kind of my jam i want (laughs) i'm super mad that like our our season as well got shut down and so i didn't get to keep playing and there's still like no word on when our season's going to be able to resume but uh yeah, I'm I'm excited for for the Caps to be back, and also just so the listeners know, uh, I want I'll say this quickly because we have a guest I want to bring in. But uh, just so our listeners know, I'm wearing my Stanley Cup champions shirt right now from the Washington Capitals because Marty, when we worked together, used to wear his Chicago Blackhawks Stanley Cup hat, and he would bring it into my office every day and be like, "You will never get this. You will never get this." La 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 la. And then one day I got this, so now I have to wear the shirt to, you know, it's just for you, Marty. But he only has the one shirt. And a hat. There's only the, there's only the one championship. There's not three or anything like that. Yeah, you're so, a hater. So we're going to anyway, move on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Conversation over. Let's bring, yeah. In our, let's bring in our guest. 
who's probably like, oh, good Lord, why am I wasting my time here? So <laughs> with us today is uh, Colby Martin. Colby, how's it going, man? Hey, Josh. Congratulations on your Stanley Cup championship. I just want to say that's not nothing. I don't know anything about hockey, but a championship is a championship. So well done. Absolutely. Yeah. What Thank year you. was that? <laughs> I guess your shirt says 20. Okay, so it was a couple years ago. Yeah. So that, that's still relevant. And when's the last yeah. time, Marty, your team won? I don't remember. <laughs> okay. it's, been, it's been some so years. You have yeah. a couple more in the in the bag, but none recently. No, That's just the, 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 the his team won much much more recently than my team. Okay. Um, which you know, Colby, that leads us to the question. We have a question we ask every guest. Um, I think I, I you gave us a preview there just a second ago, but we ask every guest, uh, who is your favorite ice hockey team? <laughs> That's. <laughs> Wow, no wonder you don't send those questions ahead of time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, this isn't a political debate. You, you, you aren't allowed to know the questions in advance. Is there, I see, is there a team, the San Diego Goals? Okay. Or, yeah. I don't not know what league they're in. I'm almost yep. certain it's not the NHL. Yeah, they're, I think they're an AHL affiliate team. Okay. That counts, man. That counts. Yeah. Well, they are my favorite. I they're, drive by their stadium often that's awesome. great you're that's right you're in san diego aren't you yeah 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 that's great i was i was i was in san diego back in uh when was it november it was my first time there and i was like dude san diego is beautiful that oh, place is awesome what are you doing out here uh i was at the the aar and oh, okay yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah hanging out there i so. considered going down there for the afternoon it's pretty cool but man. yeah aar is dope i mean i don't know like I mean, SBL is cool too, but it's mostly like disgruntled professors arguing over like one word in Greek and they wrote, you know, a 5,000 word essay on it. Um, oh, that, I thought you meant the Association of Automatic Rifles. That's the oh. one. <laughs> That's weird. I don't know what you were at. <laughs> no, no, no. The, uh, <laughs> sorry. It's Listeners, the American... I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Especially if you know already, Josh. We've that would not seen. be where Josh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. No, man. Colby, we, we, go ahead. Oh, sorry, Josh, go ahead. I was just going to say, can you uh, just, I'm, well, now we know you're from San Diego. Can you fill us in a little bit more? more? Like, who are you? What do you do? Uh, like, what's your, your faith upbringing been? Things like that. Oh, great. Yeah. So thanks for having me on, Josh and Marty. I am um, immediately drawn towards projects with names such as your podcast. I think I think that sort of imaginative work is crucial. Uh, so I'm really grateful for the work that you guys do and uh, honored honored to be here. Yeah, so my name is Colby and I'm married to my wife, Kate. We This August, we will be, I think, 18 years married. We have four sons ranging from age 15 to Gosh, what is Huck? He's eight now. They keep growing. Like every couple <laughs> months, there's a new age. Marty, you know this because you said you had four yeah. kids. They keep changing ages. And so it's really hard to kind of, <laughs> I just turned 38 on Friday. That's hard. Like now I have to remember my own age. This is absurd. Uh, so what am I? I'm a husband of one wife, father of four sons. Uh, we've got a dog and a cat. And just yesterday, my wife and son drove to Arizona to pick up a brand new kitten. So now we have a second little baby cat in the house. Growing up, I was not an animal person, still not really an animal person, but my wife adores all things animals and all of my children adore all animals. So I humbly acquiesce to their desires to have 
pet hair in the house <laughs> all the time. And uh, what else? Okay, so I'm uh, I've been a pastor for I don't know, 15, 16 years now. About six years ago, Kate and I started a church here in San Diego. So we co-pastor our church together called Sojourn Grace Collective. Uh, author of two books. My first book, Unclobber, Rethinking Our Misuse of the Bible and Homosexuality. That came out in 2016. And then, uh, what, a month or two ago, my second book, The Shift, came out. And I think that's what I'm here to talk about. Or I could be here to talk about hockey, which yeah, no, in that case, definitely the episode's not. over. We, <laughs> because we've exhausted all of my hockey IQ. Because the reality is, is that out of the three of us, Josh knows the most. Um, and so, you know, that'd be a conversation where Josh, you and I could sign off. Okay. And Josh could continue the conversation. And so I mean, no, one would know, no one would know the difference. <laughs> um, but so you, you wrote the shift surviving and thriving after moving from conservative to progressive Christianity. Yeah. Uh, I really appreciated the book. Um, I'm uh, Josh is further along in that shift um, than I am. I think, okay. I think I'm kind of more in the middle of that. Uh, and so it was helpful to definitely read through that. Um, so just to, just to get us started, you know, why did you write the book? What, what did you see was the purpose in writing the book? That's a great question. So to catch the listener up, yeah, the, the, the book is essentially, uh, if I were to put it into a nutshell, that nutshell would be called a survival guide for becoming a progressive Christian. And the idea is this, to answer your question, Marty, I have over the last six or seven years, I have, as I've been in uh, shepherding number of uh, different faith communities, both in real life and online, I've met with and interacted with hundreds, if not at this point, thousands of people who have experienced some sort of movement away from their more conservative Christian context. This could be faith, this, or I'm sorry, this could be their church, this could be their family, this could be the, the, some sort of uh, friend group. They're, they've moved away from their conservative Christian roots or context, and they're traveling along some sort of spectrum towards what I call progressive Christianity, but you could, you could talk about more, a more open and inclusive and affirming faith, but it's something that is a little more on the progressive end of the spectrum. And in that journey, in that process, in that movement away from something that's been more conservative towards something more progressive, what I've discovered is that, yes, everybody has their own unique story and their own special flavors to their experiences, but there have been some remarkable similarities that have shown up in people's journeys. It seems as though everybody experiences some degree of uh, confusion. Like, man, I don't think I really believe these things anymore. I'm not really sure what I what I do believe. So there's some confusion there. There might be some resentment at what we, you know, the, the old frameworks that we used to sort of be held by or the, or the ways that we used to be treated in our old conservative context. Uh, there might be so much loneliness. Almost anybody who's experienced the shift can attest how lonely it is when you start to move away from your more conservative uh, Christian communities. You're really like a lot of people just a great so anyway so why did i write the book because i've noticed that this experience this journey this movement um, is fraught with a lot of obstacles and complications and struggles and to the extent that i can help lighten the load for people um, to the extent that i can say hey this this experience that you're going through it's just hard it's just hard so the fact that it's it's scary and lonely and frustrating doesn't mean you're doing it wrong it just is hard. And so here are some things that both I personally and then I have, uh, like I said, uh, I, I've 
gained over the years. Here are some things that I've found people generally experience as they go through this shift. And if this can help you at all, whether it's just to normalize it or to lighten the load or to give you some, some helpful guidance as you go through, that's really what I wanted to do, Marty, was I wanted to help people um, sort of survive the obstacles and then find uh, a more thriving faith um, as they go about their way. Yeah, and you know, one of the things I loved about the, the way you wrote the book, um, this is not written, at least in rhetoric, I guess, and in, and in language and the way you wrote. This isn't some scholarly journal um, that is like really difficult to, to follow. It, this is written from like a, such a, such a storytelling rhetoric in, in like in, in language that it was so easy to read. It, it wasn't something that like put me in this place like, man, I'm going to have to like, put my seminary hat back on again so that I can like make sure that I follow all these big words that you use. Like it was so, it was so comfort, comfortable to read. So what you're saying there, when you say like, it's lonely and it's hard to move through that, like that comes out in the way that you wrote the book. Um, so I just, I applaud you on that because if it was the other way around, it would feel like it was even more isolating. And so I, I, I personally felt like that was really a, a, a plus on that side of the, of the book, for sure. Uh, a, I'm really grateful for that feedback. Thank you for saying that, because that really was the target that I was, I was trying to make it accessible. Yeah. And, and, and the two, because for, I would say a majority of people who have experienced some type of shift or whatever point they are in the, in the process, just having begun or maybe a little farther down the road, whatever that might mean to be farther down the road, uh, my experience is that their threshold or their capacity for putting up with religious jargon or even the emotional bandwidth that they have to invest in things having to do with spiritual religious nature is very limited. Very, mm -hmm. Like, cause there's a lot of, uh, like I said, there's pain, there's confusion, there's resentment. And so if, if you present them some sort of book that say, Hey, this might be helpful. And they, and they start reading it and it feels thick and heavy and they got to slog through it. It's like, seriously, I, I, this is hard enough to just sort of navigate my uncle who thinks I'm gone off the deep end. This is hard enough to sort of navigate the own internal sense of was God no longer a fan of me. Like that stuff was hard enough. So to give them some sort of a heavy theological book to read, no one's going to read that. No one's going to read that. So yeah, I'm, I'm grateful to hear that Marty, my yeah. hope was, uh, found some fruition there. Yeah, it, it was awesome. I, I want to echo Marty on that. Um, definitely came through for sure like just your your personality your care i think the the um heart you have behind your work all of that shines through so nicely so um i want to echo marty and in, in all of those things um but real real quick before we we move any further just to like kind of help people be on the same page um there's three words that i, just, I wanted to get like a quick like definition from just so we kind of understand what we're talking about um, you can take them in whatever order you want, but basically, what do you mean when, when you say Christian? Uh, how would you define that as one that is conservative and one that is more progressive? So just to help clarify for some people. Yeah, that's helpful, isn't it? Okay, so I, for the, for the term Christian, I intentionally try and keep a very broad and porous definition because I, I part of the goal here is to not define it so tightly so minutely that only a few people qualify for this thing i think that has been one of the downfalls of uh protestantism and specifically like american western evangelicalism is the the definition of what a christian is has become so uh so precise 
and really it, it then varies by denomination. So each denomination feels like they have the best definite or they have the best markers of what the Christian is. And like, holy smokes, guys, how, like, is, it, is this really what we're talking about? That only one tradition has this thing figured out? Okay, so for me, a Christian, really the baseline marker for me is, does a person have some sort of conviction, some sort of sense that the way of Jesus, and again, even that you could talk about in many different ways, but the way of Jesus uh, is a reliable and trustworthy way to be uh, a, a flourishing, thriving human in the world. So to be a follower of Jesus is to, is to say, yeah, that guy, his teachings, uh, his way of moving through the world, I trust that that will lead to more uh, peace and more grace and more justice. I trust that the way of forgiveness is better than revenge. I trust that the way of mercy is better than sacrifice. So, so to be a Christian is to say, yes, that way does lead towards abundant life. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and follow that way. That's it. So you notice that I didn't put into there like what you have to believe about the Trinity or what you have to believe about the Bible or what you have to believe about the afterlife. All of those things I think are interesting, maybe fun theological debates for some people, but they really have nothing to do with being a Christian in the most loosest sense. All that means is you are trusting that the way of Jesus is the way you want to live your life. Great. So that's Christian. Uh, then when you talk about this conservative and progressive spectrum, what I'm conscious of is that labels in my opinion, are super helpful. Labels help people give, uh, gives us a sense of identity so that we kind of know where we sit in relationship to everyone else around us. So labels are really helpful. They give us some boundary markers. And yet there comes a point where labels become unhelpful and we got to transcend them. They start to hold us back. They start to feel restrictive. So I get that conservative Christian and progressive Christian might for some people be liberative and helpful and others might feel restrictive. All I'm trying to name here is that there's a spectrum of ways that people can sort of both think about their spirituality and practice their spirituality. And for me to name this shift, to name this journey is just talk about the movement between these two poles. It's kind of like, uh, I think, Josh, you, you said you're, you're in Maryland, uh, DC area, so you are East Coast. Well, the more you start to travel towards the East Coast of America, the more you start to notice particular uh, ways that people interact, you can, or ways that people hold themselves, the ways that people talk. Like there's a type of East Coast culture. It doesn't mean that everybody that lives there is exactly a monolith Eastern person but there's some markers that you can start to recognize and then as you move towards the best coast i'm sorry i mean the west coast you start to notice there's particular markers and ways that people talk and the culture is a little bit different so even though it you know you aren't nobody is exactly a west coast person and nobody's exactly an east coast you can you can tell there's a spectrum there that's all i'm trying to name with conservative and progressive that the more that you move towards the conservative end of the spectrum the more you're going to recognize particular ways of talking about God, talking about, thinking about the Bible, talking, thinking about Jesus, the more you're going to have particular ways of organizing church and organizing religious practice. And then as you move towards a more progressive spectrum, you're going to notice some patterns and themes as well. I think in the book, I talk about progressive Christian, progressive for me is, I talk about four markers. One is that more or less, if you are a person who is open and affirming of LGBTQ people, which is to say that you are accepting and celebrating of uh, people who identify as gay, lesbian, transgender, queer, um, 
that puts you on the more toward progressive end of the spectrum. Uh, two, if you are comfortable with science, if you think that science more or less is helpful for discerning what is true and what is true is just what is true and you're not uh, afraid of what science t teaches us, that moves you more towards the progressive end. Uh, three, if you are, if you believe that men and women are equal, shockingly enough, that moves you towards the more progressive end of the spectrum. For whatever reason, the more conservative you get, the more you get the sense that men are superior to women. And then the last one is um, to accept that life is really a series of constant growth and change and transformation. So to be a progressive person is to say, matter is always moving and changing and evolving. Faith is not about this static arriving, it's about this constant growth and changing. So to be a more progressive person of faith is to understand that it's not about figuring out some past belief that we gotta lock down with certainty, but it's about always being open to what is and what could be. So that was probably longer <laughs> of a response than you wanted, but uh, welcome to Colby. So that's kind of how I would describe uh, Christian and then this progressive conservative spectrum. Yeah, that's just that's just so good. And, uh, you know, it's it's helpful to, I think, for people to put markers on things. You know, I think when we when we say to ourselves, you know, what, well, if, if I want to know that I'm this or that, how do I know it? And if it's too abstract to grasp, <laughs> then no, then you could say, well, I definitely fall into that line and no one can question you. Yeah. Um, but if, if there's markers to make it, you know, if you, you know, I mean, we're, we're dealing with things today um, like racism in our country. And uh, I think, you know, people are trying to put markers on that. You know, yeah. if, yeah. if this is, if you believe this kind of thing, you know, then sorry, you, you may say you aren't, but you, you kind of fall. So I think it's a similar right. conversation. Um but there, there's another kind of distinction I think you make in the in the in the book. You, you talk about the difference between faith and belief, mm. and why that's an important distinction to make. So, can you talk about those distinctions? What role certainty plays in that? Uh, and then, like, you, you also kind of and this is a lot I know, but you talk about faith as a verb, uh, faith as openness. Can you kind of talk about those distinctions, faith and belief? I was born uh, into a long line of Baptists. And so I grew up in the Baptist world, uh, very sort of conservative, fundamental, uh, theological perspectives, as well as a more conservative and fundamental religious practice. And so from that perspective, um, for me growing up and then going into to college and getting my degree in ministry, faith sort of always seems to uh, be solely about a list of things that you believe. So to talk about your faith was to essentially name that I believe these things to be true. And what people experience when they go on the shift is suddenly these beliefs that they've, that they've always held uh, onto, as these beliefs start to uh, fall away or change or evolve uh, or, or be questioned, what happens is if people think that their faith is solely a list of things that you believe, then when your beliefs start to change, suddenly people start asking questions like, man, I think I'm losing my faith or what happened to my faith or my faith just isn't what it used to be. And what they're doing is they're describing purely the noun aspect of faith, which is, yes, part of what it means to have faith is to believe some things. What I've found fascinating is that in my sort of, like I said, Western evangelical Protestant background, faith never really had a verb component. And I think this is a massive detriment to 
large portions of, of Christian traditions and denominations is to lose sight of the fact that faith isn't just a noun. It's not just what you believe. Faith is also a verb. It's what you do. And so what I talk about in the book is I say, what if instead of thinking of faith as just the things that you believe, which if that's the case, then it's always going to be subject to deterioration and alteration. But what if we sort of reclaimed, and you guys thought, you know, the title of your podcast, what if we sort of reintroduced the verb aspect of faith, which is right there in the New Testament, right there in the Greek word pistis, which is um, sometimes a better translation of the Greek word pistis is this idea of trust, which when you think of trust, you think of trust fall. Well, in order for a trust fall to work, a, you have to be standing there and believe that the people behind you are going to catch you. That's the, that's the noun part of the trust. But then B, you have to actually fall backwards. You have to do the thing to put your faith into action or to put your trust into action. So I think that we need to reintroduce or reimagine the verb aspect of faith. And for me, the best way of thinking about this I use the image of my, uh, my cat and my cat loves to wander all throughout the day around the house to the various parts where the sunlight is coming through the windows or the sliding glass doors. And the cat will, her name is Nala. She will find these spots of sun on the floor or on the arm of the couch. And she will, she will go all throughout the day to, to where the light is so that the light can then warm her belly. And I think, you know what, that is a beautiful image for me of what faith is. I think faith is this sense that out there, there is this great light. There is this emanating, unconditional, always present love. And faith is this constant opening, this constant turning, this constant adjusting to, uh, to, to find where the light is and to let the light warm us and change us and to be okay with the change. So I think having both the uh, noun aspect of faith, yes, that's important. It is part of what faith is, is believing things. But so much of, I think, what faith is, is this active, dynamic openness and trust that changes out there and that change is good. You know, and I've always found it interesting. There's sometimes people will use, not not to reintroduce another uh, literary term into the, into the <laughs> metaphor, but uh, people will say, I'm a faithful person. Yeah. And so they'll almost use it as like an adjective, um, which is even more uh, abstract, I feel like, than using it as like this noun where like mm. they say, I'm this faithful person, but that does, but you know, they don't necessarily have to have to live that. They don't have to look, they don't have to walk to the places of the sun in the house and find yeah. it to want to get warm. They can say, Oh yeah, I, I really enjoy when I'm laying in the in the sunlight in the house that's one of my mm. favorite things to do but never actually go and do those things <laughs> they can just yeah, they can describe good. themselves as that way and so like i said i don't want mean to introduce something new but as you were talking there that just kind of that, that kind of started it. to speak yeah. out to me a little bit too so yeah i think that's that's helpful marty and and oftentimes i think this comes into play big time with uh with my students colby um they have this idea that uh, their faith is just this checklist of beliefs, like you're saying. And then uh, they do a quick Google search and realize that, you know, pastors say different things about the same question. And like, what do we do with that? And so I think, you know, we can get, it, it becomes very dangerous when we start saying this, this is the box called faith, or this is the box called Christian. 
and you have to be certain about this. And if you're not, then I guess you're not a Christian anymore. But also it seems to take away the idea of faith as well though, too. Cause if, if you have certainty about everything, um, that's not really faith. (laughs) There's, there's not much, much to have faith in, you know? Um, but I think with, with this idea of, of our beliefs, you know, kind of falling away or, or, or getting broken up or something like that. Uh, what are some of the, the more popular beliefs that just from your experience, you see kind of get called into question that kind of push people towards this, this journey of the shift. And like, maybe what was, what was that question for you? Yeah, I I love this question. So this goes back to what I was saying earlier about how there's some, there really are some common themes that begin to emerge as people go through the shift. And there, and there are, there are some, there are some beliefs that it seems more often than not become the ones that people question as like, wait a minute, how is this, true or is this something that I want to continue to claim that I believe? Uh, and so one of those, one of the things that, one of the beliefs that, that I think catalyzes maybe more shifts than any other belief is the question about the, uh, the, the inclusion of LGBTQ people. So I, I think so much of our world and so much of our culture and society has sort of moved into this place of, wait a minute, people are born with their innate attractions and those really don't change they can be more fluid for some people depending on just sort of whether they 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 might be attracted to to multiple or different genders but they really don't change they just they sort of are what they are through this odd combination of nature and nurture how people are born and how they're raised and it's just it's just part of who they are and so why is that then becoming a thing this is the question people have why is that becoming a thing that would just disqualify people instantly from being um, part of the family of God? Why would, why would God just have this, this automatic disfavor toward people who have these innate attractions towards people? Um, so that, that oftentimes will, will start people on this journey of beginning to question some beliefs. And then they go to the Bible. They might pick up a book that I wrote or somebody else's and be like, wait a minute, the church has used these handful of verses to justify this discrimination for how long now? And what do these verses actually say? Wait a minute, what? Uh, so I think that issue uh, catalyzes a lot of people's shifts. I think the issue of, you know, the age old issue of evil in the world, and how does a, a good God and how does an evil world, how do those things coexist? So some people have to get to a point where they start to evolve and, and broaden their definitions and understanding of God and who God is. God can't just be this being in the sky who occasionally interacts with the world, right? Because that has all sorts of implications. And then that starts to challenge questions about, is God a male? Why do we always talk about God as he? Why do we always, why does, that, that's weird. God doesn't have genitalia. So why do we keep using male pronouns? Because now we're communicating all these messages that to be more male is to be closer to God. That doesn't, so, so that, that starts to challenge people's thinking. Uh, and then I think the third thing I'll mention is the Bible. The Bible, many of us are told from a young age, is this perfect, uh, inerrant, infallible, which means it won't lead you astray, inerrant, without error, this sort of perfect book. And then we get into the world, or we just open up Google, and we discover, wait a minute, the Bible has a, all sorts of errors. This is weird. Hold on a second. The Bible contradicts itself all the time this is wait a minute what's going on here and suddenly the bible 
becomes this uh, this altogether different thing than what we have always sort of been taught or believed. So I think those are three of the biggest issues that I've seen have catalyzed for people as uh, into their into their shift, moving away, or at least beginning to to challenge and question some of these long held beliefs that they've had. Yeah, Ch- chapter six talked a lot about the Bible, um, and and that was something that as I was reading through it, I'll be honest, since I'm in a different place. Uh, in that transition and shift for me than Josh is, uh, we've had we've had many people on the show uh, and talked a lot about uh, inerrancy of scripture and um, those types of things. That for everyone from people like Greg Boyd uh, and you know just having di- these different conversations about stuff, even like people like Thomas J. Ord talking about like the problems of evil and stuff like that. And so we've had these conversations. And uh, you know, as I read through that, I, I I'll admit that. The, the idea around um, picking and choosing portions of scripture that I'm willing to believe but not willing to believe mm-hmm. was challenging just for me personally, I think, because I think, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to say, oh, I don't do that. But <laughs> I, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty confident that if I were to be asked, you know, well, what, what do you think about this? And what about that? Well, I'd, oh, well, that's just metaphor. You know, that's not real. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then this part is absolutely real. You know, mm-hmm. you know, when I, I, I'm unwilling to accept, you know, something like the story of Noah as legitimate truth as actually occurring historically, but I'm willing to accept the story of, you know, G- of Moses parting the Red Sea. And, 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 and I, but I mean, those are just two very specific yep. Situ- yep. situations, but uh, that, like, as you talked about scripture, that was important. That's something that was, like I said, it challenged me a little bit as I was reading. And I know there were different parts of it that challenged Josh as well. Um, but yeah, so as you mentioned that, that was important for me. Yeah. Do uh, you mind if I re- do a quick response to that? Okay, great. Uh, one of the things I'm really good at is really bad analogies. So I'm going to offer you, <laughs> I'm going to offer you a really bad analogy for a minute. Uh, and first I want to say, Marty, thank you for, sh- thank you for sharing that. Um, I think that is a, that's uh, indicative of, I imagine a lot of people's, um, internal world as they go through their shift and they, and they, and they're, they're either asked to or forced to confront their own ways in which they probably really do pick and choose in the Bible and are having a hard time naming it because they find a, a different way to describe it. You know, like it's not really picking and choosing. It's just saying that this one is more, uh, we have to follow this, but not that. Well, you've just picked and choose. You just have a different hermeneutic that leads you to that. So, so part of that is just being brave enough to say, okay, I do pick and choose. Now let me get behind that and figure out why and just ask, get curious about that. But here's the bad analogy. I think many of us were given the idea that the Bible is akin to like an uh, Ikea instruction furniture manual where every single step matters as equally as the step before and the step after it. If you, if you don't adhere to any one of the steps and that bunk bed's going to collapse, you have to, you, everything has equal weight and value. And it is like, so this is the idea that many of us were given of the Bible, everything in it, a hundred percent equally true. And if one part of it is not true, then, then throw the whole thing out. I guess it's all a sham. But for me, as I engage with the Bible today, I think it, I think of it a little more, and again, bad analogies are my are my jam. I think of it a little bit more like a cookbook, which is to say there are going to be some recipes in a cookbook that whether it's because I don't have the right ingredients in my kitchen, 
or because it's just the not not the right time of day. Like I'm just not gonna make a pumpkin pie for breakfast, although my wife would very much enjoy that. Uh, or because my technical skills as a chef, really, I just, I get to one recipe and I'm like, there's no way I can pull that off yet. That's too advanced. It's, so when you have a cookbook, you kind of, you go to the parts that uh, meet you where you're at, whether it's your skill level or just the season in life where you're at. You're like, oh, this part really speaks to me right now. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean in and let this recipe really guide me. I think for many people, if they maybe allow themselves to lay down the Bible as this instruction manual, lay down the Bible as this, uh, this sort of, this idea that it's this document where everything is exactly true and exactly real all the time, 100%, and let it be a thing that is more like, you know what, there's going to be times in your life where certain portions of the Bible, not only are not going to make sense to you, but might actually be really unhelpful for you. Because maybe there have there have been things you haven't gone through yet in your life. You haven't you haven't gone through some of the struggles and the journeys to really receive the gifts that that are that are that are preciously uh, unearthed in this in this story or in this poem. I mean, Jesus himself was like, "Let let them who have ears hear," which is to say, not everybody's going to have the ears. Not everybody's going to have the ears, or not going to have the ears right now. Like some people just need to live life for a while and sort of deal with heartache and deal with pain and deal with suffering. Let these be your great teachers. And then you can come back to some of these parables, come back to some of these stories and be like, oh, oh, suddenly this is, you know, the, the author of Hebrews talks about it as this living document. Oh, now this thing has wisdom to teach me. And I just, I think there's a, a, a lighter, more playful attitude that we can have with the Bible that, that might unlock it for people instead of this sort of static uh, document that, that can feel really weird and oppressive uh, for some people. So I don't know. There's not really a bad analogy for you on the Bible. I dig it. I dig the bad analogies. I think it's helpful. <laughs> but I think, so it's funny because I was joking with Marty earlier when he was talking, like we were texting, he was talking about the picking and choosing thing. And I was like, dude, you're literally taught to do that in seminary. They just call it hermeneutics. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yes. That's right. So it's, and then, yeah, so whatever. But, uh, and for me personally, my, my preferred uh, hermeneutic um, is I take a, a Jesus-centered approach to scripture. And so I read everything through the lens of, of, of Jesus uh, specifically, um, you know, Jesus is the ultimate revelation of who God is. And so if we want to know what, what the character of God looks like, we can look to the person of Jesus. And then we can read back into the Old Testament and say, hmm, God doesn't seem like he's behaving like Jesus there. Perhaps something else is going on. You know, maybe maybe they didn't fully understand stand God. And so that uh, that's kind of, that's that's my way of going about things. I guess if I had to identify with any group of Christians uh, put a label on it. Um, I really tend to fall into some of the more Anabaptisty kind of streams where Jesus is at the center and, and actually means something, um, <laughs> which is why uh, your chapter on Jesus is like, that's the, the only chapter in your book that made me feel uncomfortable. And so I just wanted, I wanted to, to talk to you about that because kind of our, our thing here at, at Rethinking Faith is, is we take a a centered set approach to things instead of a bounded set. Yeah. So the bounded set is like, here's, here's the box. Everything has to fit in the box. A centered set puts something at, at the middle. And then as things kind of go out 
from that center, they, you can see they kind of become less and less important, whatever, but the, the core has to be the same. And so we place Jesus, like the person Jesus, at the center, not the theological construct of the Christ, although that is important, um, but like Jesus, the person, uh, and then kind of do everything in that lens. And we encourage our listeners, when you're going through all this rethinking, this, this shift to use your language, cling to Jesus hold on to that. Um, and so like your chapter on Jesus, it just, it, it pushed me like it, it, uh, it made me uncomfortable. And so I just want to hear like, what, what role do you think Jesus plays or like, what you see what I'm saying? Like, what do you think about this idea of, of Jesus at the center and kind of going from there? Yeah. Uh, again, thank you for sharing that, Josh. That means a lot to, to have, um, that sort of, honesty and, and vulnerability of naming that, uh, that was hard. That was hard. And I get it. It makes a ton of sense that as I was writing that chapter, I had a hunch that that might be one of the ones that, uh, trips people up more than some of the others and for, for a very good reason. And it makes a ton of sense. So the first thing I would say is, um, brother, if you having Jesus at the center of everything, is leading you to live a life full of more gentleness and kindness and patience and love and peace. If, if it's leading you to bring about more uh, goodness and beauty in the world, what I celebrate, like, that's beautiful. That's what, like, I don't, there's nothing in me that would want you to do anything other than that. Um, if it's, you know, to use Jesus language, if it's producing good fruit, then the tree must be real good. That's great. Keep watering it. It's fantastic. Uh, I would I would never want to um, ask you to do anything other than that. Uh, and I think that's entirely true for many many people who identify as Christian and and many people who are on the shift. And in fact, in our own church that Kate and I start, we hold we hold a pretty big uh, we hold a lot of space. We have a big tent for people with a lot of different kind of um, ways of thinking about the world and theology and God and all that. Uh, and for a lot of people, they would absolutely um, hear what you said and be like, yes, that's completely how I would talk about my faith as well. Uh, and some people are able to stick around our church uh, because they realize they fit within the larger tent. And other people are so, uh, they, they need, they almost have this sort of new sort of fundamentalist within progressivism, which is, uh, no, we need it to look like this still. And there's still this sort of expectation or demand that it looked a certain way. And so they've, you know, they've moved on to a different place, which is again, fine. Bless you on your way. Okay. Why am I saying all that? Well, I think for me, and part of why I wrote that chapter is because I wanted to give people permission to accept that maybe the most important thing to God is not what you believe about Jesus, really not what you believe at all. Like I really think that we've gotten off track by thinking that the most important thing to God is what is between our two years. Like that the ideas in our mind, the beliefs that we hold for some reason, we have decided that's what God cares about most. Um, so I think that is, that is faulty thinking, but then drill that down even further to say, um, but we've also been told that we have to have the right beliefs about Jesus. And like you said, not, not Christ, not maybe the sort of the messianic expectations that arose before or after the person of Jesus, but the actual historical person of Jesus, we've been told we have to have the exact correct beliefs or ideas about him. If that's the case, where I get tripped up is I say, 
okay, but what version of Jesus, whose version of Jesus are we going to then say is the most correct one? And that I think raises all sorts of interesting questions and complications because even within the gospel writers themselves, there are these minor tweaks and disagreements about the person of Jesus. And then even as you get into some of the, the epistles in the later part of the New Testament, you have some, not necessarily contradictory, but just some maybe expanded ways to think about the person of Jesus. And then you get to the Council of Nicaea and you get into some of the more boring parts for non-theologians as the church sort of evolves. You get, you get these layered views of who Jesus is. And then you get to the Protestant Reformation and you have all these different splintering versions of... So my point is, is that at what point along the last 2,000 years of church history is the correct view of Jesus? I don't think we can figure that out. I don't think the point is to figure it out. So part of what I want to do is I want to give the reader permission to, to let themselves off the hook from having to have the exact right belief about the identity of Jesus and rather move from a place of believing in Jesus to just believing Jesus. And I think that sort of shift is really significant. So we're now, instead of asking people to have the correct ideas about the person Jesus, we are simply, to go back to Marty, our, our previous conversation around faith and trust, we're now believing Jesus. We're, we're trusting that what he, what he said about how to live is good uh, and, and worth following. So I don't know that that's a sufficient answer to your, to your question, Josh, but mostly I just wanted to affirm that if that is that is how you orient your faith it's beautiful it's wonderful i would never but for the person who maybe can't any longer sort of be like yeah i just i, I can't pick one view of jesus anymore because there's just too many it's too stressful i want to say good maybe that wasn't the point because mm-hmm. i think when you look at the gospels with that set of lenses what you discover is that jesus really wasn't trying to get people to believe in him in any particular way and even when they did have a real specific view like peter who said you are the christ jesus's response was uh, well, cool, but don't tell anybody. Like, don't don't go. Like, the point is not to get people to believe this thing. So, if that's what you believe, great, but just keep it to yourself. That's wildly different than a lot of the versions of Christianity that many of us were, were given. Yeah, most definitely. I think, I think that's so. That's extraordinarily helpful, um, especially too, because I feel like so often, like a particular group of Christians will hound on this idea that we're only saved by faith, only by faith, only by faith. But when then push comes to shove, what they mean by that is you're saved by attaining some certain level of mental ascent. And once, once you get to this level of mental ascent and have all the boxes checked, then you're good. So really it's not faith in like, you know, believing Jesus, like you're saying, it's, it's, you're, you're trying to say, I have this box figured out. So I think that's really helpful. Um, and if it was about the box, if it was about getting all those things right, then I think we have to acknowledge that Jesus was a miserable failure. <laughs> and I don't, yeah. I, don't, I don't say that disrespectfully. I just mean yeah. if the point is to believe the right things, Jesus, as I talk about this in that chapter, Jesus taught in parables, super confusing, not really going to help people. Uh, when people had follow-up questions, Jesus was often totally fine with being misunderstood. So my point is, if the goal is just to to get the right answer when you, you know, the gates of heaven and St. Peter gives you the final exam, if the goal is to have the right answers, then I think we have to say that Jesus wasn't a very good teacher in that way because he didn't prepare people well for that exam. Yeah, he didn't teach us to the test, so to speak. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's good. And I think that's helpful. And I think what's nice about that too, is it, it brings in the importance of uh, this relational element that I think gets left out of uh, so much Christian uh, faith. Like we, we tend to, or a lot of people I feel like get stuck up here in their mind for people who are listening and can't see, and it never moves to here to our heart. And so we get, we, we feel like we know about God, but we don't know God. We know about Jesus, but we don't know Jesus. And this idea that you're putting forth opens up that world and say, no, maybe having this relationship with this thing that is ultimately true, that is beautiful, that is loving, that is, you know, all these things, uh, maybe that's more important. And so I think that, that's really helpful. Yeah. And, and, you know, as, as we're talking about all this stuff, you know, I can't help, but, you know, Colby, you had mentioned a few minutes ago, your church and, you know, how there are people that come and they kind of have this viewpoint and they, you know, there's, there's room for that. And I think that's beautiful because I think that oftentimes what winds up happening within any type of church, you know, even if you are the type of person that you attend a church, that's a specific denomination, there's, there's inevitably going to be slight differences among, I mean, even if we talk about age differences, if you attend a church, you know, there's, there's, Josh and I have been doing a lot of, you know, discussions and work around racism uh, over the last few weeks and few months. And uh, what's interesting is you find as you get older, you have a different perspective on racism in America that you do when you're younger. And I think what winds up happening is if we get carried away with that concept in church, somebody could take that argument so far as to say, well, then if, you know, if, if everyone believes differently in church, do we even need church? Do we, do we even need, do we, does anyone even need to go to church anymore? And so I guess that's kind of a, a long way of asking, like, you know, when it comes to church, you know, gathering together as the body, do we even need church? I mean, is having a faith community important? Um, not because I don't understand the inherent nature of gathering together as one to worship, you know, our, our father in heaven, but I guess kind of along this line, you know, asking that question that, you know, if we take things to their, you know, logical end or conclusion, you know, why, you know, is, 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 is attending church even needed? Do we even need to do that? It's interesting that you phrase it, take it to its logical conclusion. So, because even that is a very sort of post-enlightenment, rational, modern way of talking. Correct. Um, <laughs> and so if the starting point is, and I apologize for keep pounding this, but this I think is, is really important. If the starting point is that we get the right beliefs. If the starting point is, again, we assume that God cares most about us believing the right things. If that becomes the starting point, with that assumption. And the goal then is to move people. So this is how many folks would perceive church. The goal is to move people along in this sort of, like you said, Josh, this mental acquiescence journey towards believing the right things. Then your, then your question makes a whole lot of sense, which is, well, if the goal is no longer to get people to believe the right things, then what's the point of the thing that was built to, to move people in that journey? But that's why I want to go back to the starting point and say the, the, the starting point is not that we have to believe the right thing. The starting point is not to move people on the journey of a noun belief, uh, noun faith belief anyway. Not the point. Not the point. So, but if that were the point, then yes, 
church would be like, well, if, if, uh, if it doesn't matter what people believe, then let's just bail on this whole thing because who cares? I don't think, so I don't think the church's purpose is to get people to believe particular things. Now, I will asterisk that and go down here at the bottom of the page and say, however, if people have beliefs that sort of inherently lead toward uh, injustice or oppression or suffering, then those beliefs need challenged and altered 100%. Like we need to undo uh, harmful beliefs and oppressive beliefs. Uh, but again, the goal is not to just churn out, uh, you know, this is, the church is not just like a, a school to churn out people that have the right answers to the, to the test. So why do I, why do I do church? What do I think the purpose of church is? Well, I mean, there's a lot of ways to respond to that, but I think if I, I think one approach I'll take is this for 2000 years, there has been this experiment happening at, uh, in different cultures and different societies, this experiment of, and this is what, I, this is kind of how I view the apostle Paul. He was a guy who, who experimented with this new way of being human i.e. living in the way of Jesus. Uh, he was experimenting with, can people who, who are Jewish followers of Jesus and people who are non-Jewish followers of Jesus, can they, can they do this sort of new way of being human together? And this is really what Paul's original church plants were with just these experiments of, I don't think Paul knew if they were going to work or not. Can we get these diverse people to come together? This is why, why you look at so many Romans and Galatians. The, the biggest point was, hey, we need you to find unity. We need you to get along. We need you to, to, to live in harmony with one another because it was inherently complicated to have Jewish and Gentiles live together uh, in these communities. I think this experiment in many ways is still happening 2000 years later. We just have different layers of diversity, diversity of uh, uh, skin color, diversity of sexual orientation, diversity of gender identification, diversity of thought and belief and political ideologies. We are still trying to figure out, can we come together over these shared values? What is the church? The church is people who believe at a fundamental level that the way of Jesus can lead to more peace, justice, shalom, that, the, that forgiveness is better than revenge. Forgive me, I'm a broken record here. Love is better than hate. Mercy is better than sacrifice. Compassion, understand, like all these things matter. The church is committed to these values of, of being in the world, that living these as individuals and living these collectively can actually lead towards flourishing and abundance for all. When those, so Josh, I would go back to the centered set. If that's the center, if the center is this commitment to this human flourishing for all people, uh, then you can hold a pretty big bucket for belief, a pretty big bucket for uh, diversity on all different levels. So the church for me has been this 2000 year experiment. Why do I still do it? Well, because no one's really figured out a better way to do it yet. People have tried, for instance, bar churches, or they've tried just like Tuesday night dinner groups. These things are wonderful. I love it. They're great. Generally, they don't have a shelf life longer than 18 to 24 months. Uh, they just don't have the sort of the sustainable power. There's something about gathering every seven days for about an hour, 60 to 90 minutes, do some singing, do some liturgy, some prayers, maybe have people share some stories, maybe have somebody teach on a spirit. That sort of basic form of what we kind of call church has surprisingly lasted for a really long time. Like, so there's something that seems to be built into that rhythm, that, that structure that, uh, that has this time tested quality to it that we can tweak the mechanics of it, but the basic bones of it, I think is still maybe the best way that we have to get people to gather together regularly to, to orient themselves around these shared values.
Yeah. And, you know, I really like that explanation and, you know, forgive me for the way that I phrased my question. I, I wasn't necessarily thinking that challenging the notion of gathering for church was something that, you know, was like a, Oh, well, you know, because we're thinking progressively, well, naturally we should just challenge the, the gathering of church. But, but I think that, but it's a good you know, question. No, it, yeah. Even if that wasn't your exact question, it is a good question to ask. So it's worth sure. responding to. Yeah. And, and I think, and I think about the idea, you know, I've, I've, I've worked in different churches before. Um, I've, I've found that a shared desire amongst the staff members, the pastors of that church has been um, to grow people in their level of discipleship, to grow people uh, in their view of, you know, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Um, and, I, and I think that there's been churches that have done really great jobs at that. And there's been churches that have done really not all that great jobs at that. Uh, there's been churches who have been really intentional about that, you know, and say, hey, we're going to have these, you know, these ministries or these things put together to grow this discipleship. Um, I think one of the, one of the things I've noticed that's been missing is in often ways we spend a lot of time growing our, this abstract level of discipleship. You know, if you could put it on a scale, someone is at, someone's at a 73 out of a hundred or something like that, or someone's at a 20 they really have a lot of work to do when it comes to discipleship. But I think one of the things that I've seen a problem in the Western church in many ways, and I don't want to even say particularly on one side or the other, because I don't think it is, is there's been a hard, it's, it's been a hard concept to figure out how that turns into loving your neighbor, how that turns into treating people with respect, how that turns into inclusivity. Um, because I think people say, well, you know, I really want to love these people, but I read this one passage this one time in the Bible that said, I, you know, these people are deplorable or, you know, I read this passage this one time that, you know, said this, or is, which could totally offshoot our conversations. I don't mean to take us down this rabbit hole, but, you know, well, I watched this one news segment this one time on this one specific channel and everyone that goes to my church watches this same conservative channel. And uh, they said that we shouldn't allow illegal immigrants into our country. And so that must be the way of Jesus. You know, and, so, and so these things have become thwarted and these lines become blurred, but they don't necessarily, you know, these programs and these initiatives and these church things don't always turn into the actual manifestation of being, you know, like I guess the phrase being all things to all people and loving people where they are at and, being inclusive and, you know, sort of like these four markers, like you talked about earlier. Um, not that that's an even, like, not even that that's an exhaustive list again, but at the same time, kind of, I think we, we find that church sometimes almost can harbor and encourage the mentality of saying, you know, we, this is a concept that you have to get, but it doesn't have to go beyond that. If that makes you uncomfortable and, I guess what I've seen that I've loved about progressive Christianity, that one of the things that it was e the easiest thing for me to get on board with is that it doesn't stop at the, the gathering of a concept and then allowing that concept to remain abstract, but it actually turns into action. People are out there attempting to change the way things are viewed, you know, asking people to re, re uh, forgive the pun, rethink the way that they view something. Um, and say, hey, you know, maybe it's not okay for us to say you're not you're not welcome in our church for this reason or that reason. You think this way, you look that way, or you know, 
maybe that's not all right. And uh, maybe we ought to rethink that. And so I, th I think what you're, what I'm hearing you say is that, you know, this is the way that we are coming together. And it's, and, and, but from what I'm, I'm just, I'm placing pieces in the puzzle on my own. So you can tell me I'm, I've misheard or I'm wrong. But I, I think if those things are not leading to us loving people and bringing that and turning our faith into action, I think oftentimes those types of practices and traditions will eventually, they, they'll become obscure. You can keep doing it all you want, but they'll become obscure and kind of almost unnecessary because they don't lead to anything beyond that once a week gathering and getting together, if, if I'm hearing you correctly. Yeah, what's coming up for me, thank, thank you for sharing, what's coming up for me in that is, um, I think I've got this line in the book that somewhere along the way, Christianity became less love your neighbor as yourself and more believe the right things. I remember in college and, um, you know, sort of my, my early church experiences right out of college in this in more conservative evangelical world, I remember discipleship processes and discipleship ministries and discipleship groups being about primarily getting people to learn the Bible and learn particular theological beliefs and then learn how to defend those and maybe argue against, you know, apologetics is how to, how to defend your faith and, and, and tell people why, why you're right and they're wrong. And then they would use, and the, so the goal became studying your Bible, quiet time, having a rhythm of prayer. Like those became sort of the, the goals was to do those things. And then you knew that you were advancing along from that 20% along the disciple spectrum to the more 73, because you are reading your Bible every day. You're praying every day. You're, you're able to answer more theological questions. But what if the point of being a disciple is not to believe the right things and is not to just read your Bible and pray often. What if the point of being a disciple was so that you, your life would actually start to reflect and be more like the life of Jesus, which is not the same thing as believing the right thing. Cause like you said, having the right beliefs doesn't always lead towards particular actions. So what if the goal of a disciple is you follow the rabbi so that you begin to live like the rabbi? Well, now, why, why does that matter? Well, because Jesus modeled a, a type of love of loving your enemy. How do you love your enemy? Well, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about loving your enemy. It looks like this. Understanding leads to compassion and compassion leads to love. It starts with understanding. First, you have to understand your enemy. Why do they do what they do? What is, and you get in their mind and you get curious about their perspective and you start to learn about them. And then you, when you understand them, you're like, oh, that makes so much sense. Of course you would think that way because of this. Or of course you would act that way because of that. And that understanding leads to compassion, that sense of, of course. And the compassion then leads to love. And so suddenly you can begin to love your enemy by understanding them. Why do I bring that up? Well, because... What if the goal of being a disciple was not just to believe the right things, but to actually live like the person of Jesus? Well, now, if the goal is to learn to love your enemy and to love yourself and to love God and to love your neighbor, now things like Bible study and prayer and meditation don't become the goals, but the means to the goal. I don't pray so that at the end of the day, I can be like, I prayed today. 
I pray and meditate so that I can begin to be more conscious and aware of what's going on in my mind and be more able to separate my thoughts and feelings from who I am and be able to find a sort of stillness and centeredness and groundness. Why does that matter? Because then when somebody cuts me off on the freeway, I can remember that, oh yeah, I can breathe through this and they're a love child of God just like I am. Why did they cut me off? Maybe they were, maybe they're trying to rush to their child who called them from home and said, mom, Billy just burned himself on the stove. Get home as quick as you can. Oh, well, maybe that's why they cut me off. Okay, well, now I can understand that and I can love them. I'm, I'm rambling. My point is we need to shift how, we don't need to, people can do whatever they want with their lives. I suggest we shift how we think about discipleship so that it's not just being able to believe and articulate your beliefs, but it's about becoming a particular type of person. And then these spiritual practices help you become that type of person. And really, I think that's what Christianity is about. Yeah. I, I know Josh has a personal question and I, I just, I just want to add on to that. I, I think about what it would have meant in, in the time where Jesus was actually walking and doing his ministry, I think about what, what it would have actually meant to be a disciple of Jesus. You know, when the man comes and wants to follow Jesus and he says, well, can I go bury my father first? And Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. He's not suggesting that he shouldn't care about his father. <laughs> He's suggesting that following him, is, it, 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 there's, there's a cost to that. Mm. And it, you know, can, I can't imagine that those that were following Jesus and, you know, I, you know, we're actually following him physically, walking with Jesus when he was here doing his ministry, could have just walked along, but not engaged in any way, shape, or form. You know, I, I can't imagine that they could have, you know, been following along, but at the same time had a completely different agenda that just happened no. to coincide with all right. the places that Jesus was walking to. But they instead, they, they were following him meant that they left their husband or their wife behind that they left their children or their families or their parents behind, that they, um, they, had, they had no idea where they would be going. But, but what following him meant was that they were following him. Um, and, and, I, and I don't imagine that, you know, they were the type that they just had, you know, thousands of dollars in the bank account. They could go to McDonald's with their debit card and get food and get a hotel while everyone else had to figure out what they were doing. Like, they were doing that together as a team and as, as, as a cohesive unit. And they were following him because he was someone worth worthy of being followed. Yeah. But, but it was, it was different than I'll follow you only so far as I feel like my convictions are like following him meant putting everything down, following him a hundred percent. And it didn't look the same for everybody. That's right. And, yep. and so I don't know, there's, there's, there's a lot to that, that, that I think about that, you know, following Jesus physically was different. Yes, I love that, Marty. Following has a cost. It does. Soren Kierkegaard says that Jesus wanted followers, but the church churns out worshipers, worshipers of Jesus, not followers. And these are not the same things because you can worship someone which has an inherent distance to it. Like I, I worship you, but it doesn't actually make a demand on my life. You can worship Jesus without actually following. Following Jesus has a cost. So I love that you brought that up. I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. Yeah, I think what that's pointing to for me as well is, and I think you capture this idea perfectly, Colby, it's, it's, it seems to me that Christianity has become transactional rather than transformational. It's, it's just become a, a, a set of propositions. You do this for me, check this box, I'll do this for you, rather than this new way to be human, like you were talking about, this transformational relationship. And so 
I like to talk about our, our faith is, is a journey of becoming, not one of arriving. And you're like, oh, great, I've made it. Right. It's, it's a constant journey of becoming. Um, and so that's, that's really helpful. And I, I just wanted to throw one more thing at you. I know we're over, over our, our time, and so I want to be fair to you and your family. Um, but there was, there was one chapter in your book that I considered not reading. <laughs> and I think it was, it was, it was a subconscious thing. It, and and um, it's, it's something that I've been uh, dealing with more recently in uh, therapy um, and some things like that. There, there's this big role that shame has played in my, my life in a wide variety of ways. And so I think that was probably why I wanted to skip the chapter, but it had to do with, with, with interactions uh, handling those people, those concerned family members and friends um, that kind of are like, you know, warning you, you're on a slippery slope or, or you're not a Christian anymore or, or, or something like that. Um, because I have a, a very particular person in my life um, that is a constant nagging pain in my ass, um, <laughs> to be blunt, and I think for, Marty's still on, so be careful. Okay, yeah, that's true. Just don't kidding. tell him. Colby, don't tell him, okay? He, he had to step away to go to the bathroom. But I'm actually, muted, so like, I couldn't hear anything. <laughs> actually, I'm not, so I'm not going to say this person's name, but Marty has told me many times that I should not be in a relationship with this person anymore. Mm. My wife has said the same thing, and now so has my therapist. But I'm like so inherently relational that I'm having a hard time letting go of this element but they say things to me that are spiritually manipulative and abusive and it's not helpful. And that constantly is, is pinging around in my background, um, questioning all this, like basically it's preventing me from fully accepting the good gift that God actually has, that God is. That, that's what I've noticed recently. Um, I, I can't fully enter into relationship with God because of these things. And it's annoying the crap out of me. So what, what kind of advice do you have for people that are, that are in similar spots? Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, man. That's hard. That's hard. Um, what I hear in that is if multiple people who are close to you are, are sharing with you that maybe this, maybe you need some new boundaries with this person. My gut tells me that uh, the, reason why that hasn't happened yet is because this person means a lot to you and or this person has historically been um, a, a significant part of your life so it just sounds really hard and i'm sorry um one of the things that i try to practice in my own life and then encourage others to practice is to um is to really sort of turn inward and get curious about why, why maybe you're having a hard time establishing boundaries. And my gut tells me is that not only does this person mean a lot to you, and historically they have played a significant role in your life, but also there's a story that gets run in many of us, especially those of us who maybe came from more conservative spiritual backgrounds. There's a story that is run in our hearts and minds that tells us things such as, the Christ-like thing is to always find reconciliation or the, the, the best Jesus way is to be a bridge builder or the most godly thing here is to be a peacemaker. And that means not breaking relationship. So we have these scripts, we have these programs, we have these tapes, my therapist calls them, these old tapes that are, that are always running these stories that we tell ourselves. 
And what can happen is they can really get in the way. They can really, and this is what I feel, this is what I hear you describing is you can, you're starting to realize how these old scripts, these old stories are actually impacting or, or preventing you from, from finding this greater flourishing both internally and probably with other relationships in your life. And what I encourage you to do, and this is what I do for myself, is I, I look at that script, that story, and I thank it for its role in my life. So if I were you, Josh, I might be like, you know what? I love that part of me that really values relationship. I love that part of me that really doesn't want to cut people out of my life. I've, I love that part of me that really values reconciliation and values holding on to people even that I'm in conflict with. I love that part of me. It has served me well in the past. I can see in the past where, where other people might have left individuals, but I stayed close to them. And that, that made the difference, the fact that I wouldn't leave them. Um, I, so you just have this, have this moment of really thinking, like, I love that part of me. I do. I love it. And in this particular season, in this moment in my life with this individual, I think I need to let that part of me die. I think I need to let that, I think I need to give that part of me permission to no longer take the steering wheel and control. Thank you for how you've served me in the past. But right now, I think you're holding me back. And it sounds like you have some really wise voices that are externally saying that, that this part of you, which is really beautiful and lovely, might be holding you back with this one particular individual. And this is why I imagine this chapter might have landed the way it did for you is because, because I hear you saying that the person of Jesus is the center of your faith, which is beautiful. Remember, I affirmed that. Part of why I wrote this chapter this way is for individuals like that who would benefit from hearing Jesus say to you, Josh, shake the dust off your feet and move on. This divine permission slip to not carry this heavy burden to try and force reconciliation or force relationship or force people to accept you. Some people will just are unable to accept you or unable to accept your ideas or your beliefs or who you are. And what Jesus said to his disciples was, if you are met with that sort of resistance, shake the dust off your feet and move on. And that's okay. It's not easy. It's not easy. Really hard. For all sorts of good reasons, it's hard your own internal personality. You might, it's hard for the stories that you've had. It's hard, um, but it's okay. You have permission. You have permission from Jesus to shake the dust off your feet. And, and I, you know, I hope you pick this up in the book that it doesn't mean it's forever. It doesn't mean like you're cutting them off forever. It just means that maybe for a season, you need to have different boundaries with some people in your life um, so that you can at some later on down the road, maybe re-engage in a more healthy, uh, connected way. Yeah, thank you uh, for that, Colby. That's that's super helpful and just affirms so many of the, um, I mean, the things that I feel like uh, God has been saying to me through, you know, various people. Lots of wise people, like you said. Aside from Marty, he doesn't count as a wise person, but um, <laughs> as a good friend, I'm just kidding, Marty. Um, but yeah, man, that, that chapter was, was extraordinarily helpful um, and challenging in all the right ways. Uh, so thank you for that. And I know it'll help uh, many others who are like me. So, um, but man, this has been like fantastic. Um, your book is, is wonderful and we're going to be sure to link it in the show notes. 
Um, we can link on Clobbered as well since you mentioned it. That way our listeners can find both of them uh, super, super readily. Actually, my coworker, uh, her name's Heather. She uh, works with our middle school students. When I told her um, that we were going to be hanging out today, she was like ecstatic because she loved Unclobbered so much. She was like, that's so cool. So what I'm up, saying, what's up to Heather? Yeah, <laughs> what's up from Heather to you? That's awesome. Can I, uh, can, I just say, can I just say one thing before we totally close out? I, I just want to say, um, Colby, I have to be honest and say that I don't, I don't know that I've um, interacted with somebody um, quite so empathetic in a very long time. Um, and, and, and when I say that, I, I don't mean empathetic in a way where, you're, you're, uh, where, I, where I get the sense that it's something you know how to turn on and turn off. Um, but, but I feel like I'm interacting with someone that like, th this is genuinely who you are. Um, you know, I can hear in your voice, you know, thank you for taking this away from that. And, uh, man, that just means so much to me and, uh, hearing in, in, and not just again, like hearing Josh's plight with this, with this person and not just kind of writing it off as, you know, well, people have told you what to do. So it sounds like you have your answer already, but I mean, acknowledging, I mean, there's so much about you that like, and I don't mean this, although you are a very good looking person, um, but uh, I, there's so much about you that strikes me as attractive. Um, you're, you're one of those people who has those personalities that, you know, people just, you, you, people want to be around someone that is gen, that genuinely cares about them and about the things that they're going through. And uh, that just, to me, that just stuck out so much. Uh, and you're in your book, but then in in your personhood, I can just I can see it in your body language. You you listen and you care, um, and so I, I say all of that because it that's that's affected me. As you were talking to Josh, you know, I felt myself feeling emotionally uh, just very very affected by that in a good way. Um, so I I just thank you so much for um, being the person you've been created to be. Uh, but but I see that. So if you're if you're if someone is living in the San Diego area, I mean I I find myself wishing I could come to your church, you know, <laughs> like and and be there with you. But where where can people find you? Um, how can people get in touch with you if they want to? Um, you know, all those different things. How can people get involved with Colby Martin? That was beautiful. Uh, thank you. Thank you for reflecting that back. That means means a lot man um yes uh first of all i just moved to san diego that's my first marty just moved to san diego i mean what chicago's just so windy um if only there was a worship pastor job somewhere out there I and then know, i could convince I, my wife to I move know. to san diego <laughs> uh maybe someday brother maybe someday um yeah okay sorry i was i was moved by what you said what was your question uh it's easy to it's easy to find me. This is what I say. Thankfully, my mom gave me a rather obscure name, so people can just literally Google Colby Martin, and I take over most of the first page of Google. So there's just there's not many of me out there that has an online presence. So I'm easy to find. Colby Martin Online uh, dot com is my website. I can take you to uh, sermons and books and our church website, um, Instagram, Twitter at Colby Martin. But yeah, super easy to to connect with me. Uh, we'll, we'll be sure to, to link people to that. And, and Marty, I want to comment on what you said really quick. Um, 
and I'll, I'll speak it directly to you, Marty, but for the intent of, of Colby hearing it as well. Um, something that I was talking to my therapist about recently, um, her name is Sid. She's awesome. Uh, Sid Hosklaw, actually, for listeners who might um, have heard of her work before. But she, I was basically reflecting to her that I don't know how to explain it, but there are, are times when uh, I conversate with somebody um, and I can, f- there's something transcendent about what's happening. And without sounding too woo-woo or weird, um, I think the language that I would like to use is the, the, the Christ inside of me or the divine inside of me, whatever language you're comfortable with, can see and recognize the Christ or the divine in the other person and they kind of come into relationship and speak and there's something transcendent and beautiful that happens and those are the kind of people that i want to stay interacting with because that's the good fruit that i think is is jesus (laughs) that's the way and so when there's people that embody that and it's true and genuine and it shines forth it is attractive to use your word marty and i was talking to sid about this and have described other people like this in my life and one thing, and because I told her, I was like, that's who I want to hang out with. I don't, you know, I don't want to hang out with these other people. And she was like, well, this person that you're having a hard time with, do you have the same interaction? And the answer is absolutely not. And so, I don't know, Kobe, it's awesome, man. I, I really appreciate it. And it's been great, dude. Um, so I wish you all the, the best in what you're doing. And uh I've been hanging out, like, you know, stalking your podcast a little bit, the the church, the sermons, uh, kind of, you know, being a, a outskirtsy kind of member listening to your stuff. So thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for this this book. And uh, this, was, this was fantastic, man. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. Great to meet you, Josh. Great to meet you, Marty. You too. And uh, as always, guys, go Caps. And Blackhawks, go Blackhawks. And of course, go San Diego Goals. Goals, (laughs) I guess.